it can be that for various periods of time in this field of coexistence life moves reasonably easily along with its variety of uh, ebbs and flows whether that expresses as traveller's life family life, nomadic life, working life, study life, day-to-day life with the ebb and flows which um, move and reveal itself to to our life there's a certain familiarity with the cycles there's a familiarity of course with the primary kind of roles which uh, you and I uh, engage in and that may continue for various extended periods of time there is obviously no assurance no guarantee that the continuity of the familiar even though it's rather secure and uh, comfortable and reasonable there is no assurance nor guarantee that a significant and major break could take place in the human life as well as out there in a single moment or a series of them and this I would describe here as a disruption to some degree your kind willingness to disrupt probably the usual patterns and flows of your daily life is expressing itself in your wish, your determination and your planning to be here so you and I wherever we may be from within uh, India or overseas at some point the thought arose sequence of them that it would be useful in the upcoming period to have a break from the familiar whatever that might be about to disrupt that interrupt it and engage in something different whether this is your first retreat or whether for some of you and friends here it's five years, ten years, twenty years and uh, longer and that shift then renders the possibility of generating enough space within the being in order to see whether another precious and important disruption can take place plenty of emphasis has been placed while uh, 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 here with you in variety of languages which more or less says don't waste your time use the day fully and to really enter into a innocence a freshness a newness kind of unknownness to explore with the expectations modest and quiet in the being not to get rid of them but modest and quiet in the being to see what may unfold out of that and the quiet commitment to that shows itself of course in our noble silence it shows itself in the silence of the body it shows itself in the silences at times of the mind and in the silences of the mind one of the most uh, beautiful experiences available to our species in the silence of the mind that silence when there's some quiet depth with it is vulnerable it has to be 
It's vulnerable because of the conditions which allow and enable it to be. But with that vulnerability, we do become rather extraordinarily mindful when we have lost kind of contact with the quietness of the being, the quietness uh, uh, of the time, of the opportunity, and humanly there's a little bit of irritation, a little bit might be an understatement at times, when the mind does not seem to be cooperating. And we require a little bit of patience with that. The choice of, I want it like this, the mind will not take any notice of that. You and I are not in the privileged position because this mind is not ourself, not who we are. So we're not in the position and say, okay, mind, stop. Okay, mind, stop thinking. Okay, mind, touch the deep. Okay, mind, be on the receiving end of liberation. And the mind is going to take a scrap of notice because it came out of the same mind. How could it? So in the, when I change the, the voice and the languages, it's, it's past lives. <coughs> so, <laughs> in the exploration, in the, another point in a moment, in the exploration which uh, takes place, this acknowledgement and recognition at times valid, in which the intentionality is the means to disrupt the old, to enable and generate something new to come in. So intention, with energy and clarity and mindfulness, those quiet and trust, of course, trust, 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 there is a break from the old. That break from the old may be and has been and continues to be for some of us something totally fresh completely new sense of priority or direction there and liberation in its importance and in its beauty carries with it the break from the old every time and the break from the old may be, nearly every time, short qualification, the break from the old which takes place, as I mentioned, may be into something fresh and new. But the break from the old may not be a departure from it, but one thing the disruption will do, if it is not a departure from, like going from home to here, it means that the disruption is a completely fresh way of looking at that which one is familiar with. The familiarity is the death of being alive. The identification with the habit and pattern is the killer of human spirit and, and human initiative and creativity. So our willingness to break from, as a, sometimes it comes together and we can engage in it. But, with the break from the old, uh, it doesn't depend on anything in particular. So it would be an exaggeration to say, wow, if there's going to be a, a break, a disruption, a freshness, a, a newness in my uh, life, or in life there, then it will require um, the intention to do it. But this reliance on the intention, the intention may not be able to do it. I wish to be liberated, I've got the intention to do it. 
I wish to live with love. I have the, I have the intention to be really clear uh, day by day. And if I pin everything on the intention, there, that intention is not independent. The choice is not independent. It's reliant upon many other factors. It's not stuck out there inside, separate from everything else. It couldn't be. So the intention is supported with interest, it's supported with some energy, it's uh, supported with the background of any understanding that we might have, it's with all being well with values and with uh, ethics and with the sense of potential as a human being and the whole variety of conditions, heart, mind and body, coming together and in that coming together as with everything else, an intention, purposeful, can form out of it and that becomes the means for the disruption. What is worth your disrupting? What's worth seriously engaging in a disruption of? I may just say one or two of the, the uh, uh, personal uh, ones here, it's not in, in, in order to um, boast or anything, it's too childish, but just as the, the point of information, and it might, re might um, how shall I say, might resonate with you. And the reason that it's important for the reflection here is to give some time in our life and to remember just perhaps two or three times when intentions in this case and priorities in this case have come together and you've really made pretty significant change in your life. And you've moved away from the old, whatever that old may be, you've started something new with a certain innocence that's gone uh, with it one doesn't know how it will work out, whether it really is worthwhile, but something in the being is said, this is valid, this is authentic, this is uh, listening to myself. And that willingness to listen deeply and to engage in action, as I keep repeating now, is a bit of a, could be a really major break from the past. It's an adventure. Some of you are living this adventure. Some of you are living this ad adventure in a disruption towards the fresh view. Now, when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, yeah. sometimes, you see my beloved friend here, Brian, I have to mention this to you, Brian, I had an insight today, not a sort of funny thing. So, from time to time, uh, I catch Brian um, sitting as he does now. See, like one ear here, kind of nicely tucked in, you know, quite close to the head. And the other one on the right hand side, like a bunny rabbit, sticking right out. And I, and I often wondered until this morning, Brian, why is this ear sticking out and this one is you know, relatively smoothly and flat and it's had a little tuck in there? Not an operational one I want to add quickly. And this one sticks out. I've, I've decided, I found out this morning, Brian, it has to be. I was doing the same as you in my past life. <laughs> so in this present life, this is humour, it's not reality. <laughs> Some people get them confused. <laughs> So in this present life, um, as a consequence of listening to the teacher, yes, 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 so be mindful, Brian, of next life. <laughs> All right, where was I? Oh, I was in this life. So um, when I was a, a teenager, I went to a school called the John Fisher Roman Catholic Grammar School in Purley in Surrey in south of London. Half the children were 
boarding school kids, and the other half or two thirds or whatever were day pupils. Catholic priests, Catholic teachers, Catholic head of the school, Catholicism dripping out of the walls it did. Service every day, in the afternoon, and then we teenagers, 14 and 15, as soon as you got down out of the school and down the street, get out the cigarettes and have a quick smoke to show we were adults. So anyway, I got to the age of 15 uh, with this uh, school and I went home to my parents and said uh, to them, I'm leaving school, I've finished, I've had enough. And they said, oh, you can't leave school, you're, 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 you're 15. I said, of course you can leave school, you leave school at 15 at, at that time. And they said, but you haven't done your exams, you won't get a proper job, you know, you're ruining your future, you could go to college, you could go to university. And I said, I'm done, it's finished, it's over, I'm out. And what? You can't do that, we've got so much blah, 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 into your education. They called the priest, head of year, and uh, so the priest came to the house and I was banished to the kitchen. And they were sitting in the front room of this council house in the, the lower poor working classes. And they were discussing the strategy to get me to agree to go back to school. And I couldn't hear anything that was going on, but of course I knew this was what was kind of going on. I couldn't hear it, but I knew. So I shouted out. My, my, my mother told me this about years later. She remembers this when I had a baby. I shouted out. I am leaving school and there is nothing that the three of you can do to stop me. And then my parents went, there. That's Christopher. He's out. And I was out. It was a, either a mini or a maxi liberation. You can you know, take it either, uh, either way. Then life went on in other, uh, other kind of uh, ways there. So sometimes there are the external voices of authority. Mummy and Daddy. There. And a whole variety of others who will say to us, look, I'll say to myself, maybe you've heard this as well, you know, why don't you, like one journalist, when I had another, I'm out of here, to hitchhike in 1967, if I may say, to uh, India, one journalist said, Christopher, only 22 get another two or three years of uh, journalism under your belt and then if you get that under the belt that will be a really good step in the career. Then perhaps do a little bit of travelling for three or four months uh, like that there and then come back to a, a good job and a good career. Said, Just wait a little bit, don't be so impatient, etc. You know, it's a kindly voice. Then a very good friend of the family. Two years at the age of 22 seemed like eternity. So again, enough. The shift and the change and then to see what unfolds there. And sometimes in life I just use these two small uh, examples uh, there. It's with, not quite sure where it comes from, but the kind of some kind of um, movement in the being and what I felt over the years with these disruptions, you may have felt this as well, if quite a lot of well-respected people with authority and position in life are encouraging us not to do something, like you know, a real change, that is the confirmation that we are on the right track. When the voice of the round says, you shouldn't, don't, 
then you know, yes. Yes. Go for it. Even in the talk, in the NA talk, uh, there's some rhythms and flows with the talk. Obviously, the immense privilege of serving the Dharma and sharing it uh, uh, well, with you. And just incidentally, with the public speaking aspect, I don't know how it is in your respective uh, countries, but they did a sociological survey. And what is your biggest fear? That was the question. So, as they do, they asked a thousand people, What is your biggest fear? And number one on the list was public speaking. That was number one. And the second was fear of death. So, in other words, fear of public speaking is worse than death. So there's a nervousness that people, some people may uh, have uh, about this. But to the liberation of the voice, and this is just one modest and small expression uh, of it, we can do, I actually give lots of training in speaking, in public speaking, in confidence and communication and facilitation and leadership, etc., in the part of the job. And so sometimes we may feel inside of ourselves a bit of nervousness, or I can't do that, or I'm not prepared for that, or whatever. But you need the company of the like-minded. We need the women and men around us who are confident and in terms of the communication. And with some little skill and a little bit of training, that voice will be found. If I may say, a bit of publicity here, free publicity. That we have a program going on in the summer. This is in Germany. Uh, there, this current one is uh, full with a rather long waiting, waiting list, incidentally, but more importantly. And on the first day there, I, I tell people, I think, there's, I think there's 65 participants for this, that to go outside, look around outside, you can take pen or paper or whatever, come back and with a group of around just 8 or 10 of those people, to sit down in front of them and just speak for three minutes. And they know what they're going to do long beforehand and just speak for three minutes and be willing to take some questions from those. Because the questions you've got to answer, obviously, spontaneously. You, know, you can't Google it, but answer it spontaneously. The next day, it's five minutes. They've got time to prepare, they can use their notes or whatever, it's getting the voice. And the day, then a few days go by, then we'll be up to 10 minutes, then a little bit more, 15 or 20. And people who say, gosh, Christopher, you know, talking and speaking to a group of others, I just get so tense, my stomach tires, my voice freezes up, all those things we've been talking about down the centre of the body uh, there. And just with a little practice and lots of love and support and more and more, people find the voice. The voice which they didn't even realise they had. So, though we may assume this is how I am, I'm not a public speaker uh, there, but we shouldn't assume this is who I am. And then, so this also can be disrupted. It also can be explored to finding the voice. And it's important because, very simply, there are far too many voices in this world, in my view, uh, which are unhealthy, unwise, unskillful, positively harmful uh, there. And we need some really fresh voices from women, from men, and from children. And the children are finding their voice. The youngsters are speaking up. The teenagers in the high school, the college kids, the university youngsters and others. And they have a sense, as 
uh, one person here, of the nuances of what's happening. And they're finding their voice together. And I want you to find your voice as well. Liberation of the voice matters as much as any other kind of liberation. In the talks, just coming to that uh, for a, a um, moment or two, one of the, the, the privileges of um, sitting uh, here, if I may say, that's not only the opportunity, it's a great privilege to speak and uh, share the Dharma with you, but also, equally, it's an opportunity to check out in front of me, you know, how the uh, postures are, and the body is, and the receptivity is, and much, much more. Eyes and voice are easily harmonized together. Sometimes, here's the point, in the disruption, I may be speaking about a theme, whatever it is, being well, rather important and valuable theme, and then deliberately I interrupt it. And in the interruption of it, sometimes I'll speak about something quite disconnected. I'll throw in a story, I'll throw in a bit of humour, uh, throw in something about the family, or whatever it might be. And the intentionality with it, it's got a serious aspect to it, that in the story or in the humour or whatever it might be about, it's to expand the uh, lovely listeners who are in front of me, so that the more the sense of the whole being is receptive. And humour, because it has joy in it, and happiness in it, and fun in it, and delight, and smiles in it, and much, much more, immediately, one of the quickest ways for something in here to expand out very quickly, is that's what humour and stories do. They, they, we are kind of interested and fascinated with the stories and Christopher makes good use of them because I am not a professional, thank goodness for that. And with the stories that which get expressed, well, it's a disruption. But if you listen and this, the humour or the story, which sometimes people will see a look around, I know some of you, then look around. Oh, oh, Christopher, I heard that story before, a few years ago. Or, I, don't, I, I want something deeper, Christopher. And so then people get a bit restless. The legs start sticking out. They start looking out the window. You know, you know I'm sitting here, I've got a clear, reasonably clear view of you. Of you all. The humour story comes to its end, let's say, is disrupted. And this disruption of the humour is because there's some expansion in the being which is going on, listen to that. And sometimes within five minutes I will endeavour to touch something deep and significant and profound with you. And it goes, it's not filtered out or blocked by heady thinking. And so we, we use the matter of the heart, as in the way. We have a mind, it's a teaching of development of the mind, for sure. It's a teaching of development of the heart, for sure. But it goes, much deeper than that. Much deeper. And the disruption aspect to it is rather uh, precious in all, in all of this. The disruption which takes place <coughs> there 
In its movement, it doesn't necessarily require any intentionality. It's not the centralized psychological component in the makeup of the mind. So the movement, that means um, the expression, the, the freeing up movement, pardon me, may have the absence of intentionality and it may be imposed upon us. That hasn't come from within. It's sincerely, shall we say, disrupted our lives. You had a wonderful job, you're well paid, company is downsizing, you're out. Could be very worrying and unhappy and stressful, such a disruption. There's kids to feed, there's the mortgage to pay for, and uh, all of that. And that old security has been has gone, has been has been lost. It's a disruption. The disruption in which as a as an example, in which there is a break from the regularity uh, of the old, will generate the sadness. And that's something one's committed years to it. I've had personnel officers on my retreat, and they've had to say to their staff one by one when they come into the office look I'm very very sorry I know you've given great service to the company you've been here for 10 years you've been here for 20 years but the company uh, now does not require your services anymore thank you, goodbye you'll get some modest redundancy it's a huge shock the people who have committed themselves to that to their career and their livelihood and the support of their family to have that uh, statement put, put in front of them by the personnel officer of the company or of the government, wherever it might be. And it isn't easy, but this is our practice. This is our practice, remember. Practice, keep the word in mind here. It isn't easy. Say, so, okay, this door, metaphorically, is closed on my life. I'm out, I'm gone, I'm unwanted. And it isn't easy to make the shift from that which has closed itself on my life, no matter how much time I've given to, in this case, the job, to recognizing somewhere in all of this there may be a door which is open for a fresh life. Otherwise, we live in the hurt and the trauma and the disappointment and the anguish of what happened or what went wrong or why did it end up like this. With all the good intentions, the good intentions which are disrupted and broken and, and uh, finished cannot protect us from disruptions which we would never want nor invite. Never. But this is life. It moves along, as I say. It presents us with an opportunity, I say. And sometimes something stands out for us and there's a recognition that we can change, we can enter into the new and, to repeat a little bit, there's a certain freedom or liberation from the old there. Sometimes little risks in life they do tend to add a bit of vitality there. And it would be a pity if our life is a little bit too safe and secure. I'm not keen on security. I don't think it's good for us. I think insecurity is a little bit more challenging uh, there. But in the uncertainties and the insecurities, sometimes some other kind of potential 
comes out of the being. If life is too safe and too secure, we've got it all nicely fixed together in a, uh, there. I'm not sure if it's good for a human being. Adventures, adventure in life. I'm not talking about climbing up Mars, Mount Everest past all of that pollution that's on it. And similarly, I'm pleased to hear that plastic has been banned in Kerala. That government has banned plastic in Kerala. Isn't that just fabulous? That's a lovely disruption to people's lives. We need governments like in Kerala. Not just, oh, you've got to pay 5p for a plastic bag in the shop. Well, no. You know, if I was the Prime Minister, I wouldn't be fluffing around doing things by half. Plastic is a problem. Stop it. End, end the plastic. No more plastic bags. Plastic's got to be used very, very very, very mindfully, and not three levels of plastic in one particular item, which we sometimes get. I was in Myanmar, no, I was, not. I was actually in Thailand, but I was with a, a good friend, Hal. Hal is from California, absolutely wonderful man, probably around the same age, I love him uh, to bits, and he goes into Myanmar for years there, giving support to the people, the refugees who are right on the border of Burma, Myanmar, and Thailand. The Burmese, Burmese government, military, don't want them in Myanmar, and the Thais refuse to allow them into Thailand. So they're stuck right on the border. So some years ago, a decade ago, I went with him in order to get into Myanmar. We couldn't, uh, couldn't go through any frontiers, we have to go through the forests and the rice paddies and secretly get into Burma and go that way and just hoping we wouldn't be spotted by the Thai authorities or the Burmese and get shot or get arrested or whatever it might be. And then we travelled in through the back door, there was no door but back way, up through Thailand there. And giving um, support, and I don't think how might be saying this, he would take, he's wealthy, a bucket load of Myanmar's currency, like this, notes, packed tight, like a block of it, bricks of it, and had an extremely good uh, team, and doing this remarkable work to support these uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable people. Uh, there. And he, he was doing it year after year after year this uh, work with fundraising from the kind generosity of US citizens and much, much more. So we went up at the time there, keeping a fairly low profile because at any time the Thai or Myanmar's military could move in and then they did it. And then we were coming back, the small incidences of uh, like and one thinks, oh God, it went so well, it went so smoothly. There, we're sitting on the back of the motorbikes with these two young guys, probably 20 years of age, uh, down through the tracks and the lanes uh, to get back into Thailand. And we're just getting back. And the thought arose, <sighs> everything went well. We were able to distribute the money because it would be hard to explain if we got arrested where all this, what we were doing with all this money in the backpack, uh, etc. And anyway, we got back there, and then suddenly a temporary border with soldiers standing there with rifles were right in front of us, and we we're going there, <laughs> had a life sitting on the backs 
going down on these motorbikes and then they've got these soldiers there just standing looking at us and we've probably never even seen westerners before we were out in the middle of nowhere and I thought just before that, minutes before I go back no problem, it's all over we go back to the the village where we've got the organisers and the activists and the campaigners and others uh, uh, there just see these soldiers and so we go along side by side in the, the bike and it's sometimes it's the small moment of mine of life which is, is the precious one we just look at each other a moment just smiled decided not to stop <laughs> there but to quietly slow down there on the motorbikes and just wave <laughs> to the soldiers on either side of us they waved back <laughs> and then we just carried on just lovely beautiful moment you know they just the first oh my god what's going to happen we're going to get arrested now they're going to be asking lots of questions where have you been what are you doing why are you going blah, blah, blah. Just way <laughs> smiling, you know, like a couple of naive tourists, <laughs> like, and it just flows through. You know, sometimes the humour or the playfulness or the absurd idea carries much more weight and authority than fear and you know it shows in all the body, etc. And, and, and we need this spirit of the human being in this case to allow and to enable us to let go of the fear, dissolve the fear or whatever it is and let something rather fresh come through no guarantee of course but it could be the saving grace that's potency of it, it really, it really could, could be so our recognition of the, uh, the movement of life Acknowledgement, acknowledgement of the appreciations which come there knowing that sometimes it's the intentionality it's the spontaneous unthought of unintended but it just bursts through the being and it calls upon a liberating change which is the break from the old or a break in the way we look at the old and that which might come from out, outside uh, as, as well. In the movement, that movement which takes place, that uh, outburst, shall we uh, call it, the Buddha speaks of this and speaks of it, all that which is significant, like this, it all rests in the deathless. All the movements coming to their end, they read, and the movements therefore have a beginning and an end, including the disruption, then rests in the deathless. And the movements, temporary, disruptive, rhythms and flows it is such an extraordinary sense in a way to realise that when a person asks perhaps of themselves or perhaps of the other but how do I know there is a, a deathless how do I know what will tell me the confirmation of it is all this in which we are living it has to be it has to be the deathless is so extraordinary that we we our human beings, we, 
living, we live on the edge, so to speak, of the deathless, which enables us, because it's on the edge, to witness that which appears to be born and dying, coming and going. And when the self of the witness, sitting, so to speak, on, and actually, on the, uh, the edge of the deathless, and the self, not absolutely, but kind of fades away, is no longer making that division there, there is, not I realise, there is the realisation, that means it's then the real, through the confirmation that these movements of life rest in the deathless and the deathless makes everything possible. Everything. Because the deathless has no colour, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no thought, no feeling, no um, history, no background. And in the absence of all of that, which is the deathless, all this rests with that. All of this is the confirmation of the deathless. Extraordinary. Marvellous. Just at lunchtime, last small personal story of the day. So just at uh, lunchtime we were having our uh, chat and we mentioned the beloved name of Jaya. And I've known Jaya a little while since her late teens, I think about 19, when she came to India. And she's now, we, have, we share the same birthday. Which is sweet. Our birthday is Earth Day. So, so sweet. April the 22nd. That's Earth Day. Both born on Earth Day. And just over, this is a small tribute to, to, to Jaya here. On, so you we'll see her regularly. She spent many, many years there. She's a Harvard graduate, she's very bright, very intelligent, and a really wonderful Dharma teacher. So, and she led a very quiet, modest life. Like a nun she lived, Jaya. Very totally unassuming, never looking for attention from uh, anybody, just quietly contained being. I, I just loved her presence, still do. Loved her presence. And we were here in this hall on the first retreat and Dharma gathering that was given here, and that was in 1999. And in a wish of mine to invite this uh, remarkable uh, American woman, so at that time, in her late 20s, I would say, um, to uh, share the teachings and the Dharma with all her years of experience that she'd had in India, going back home to the United States and coming back here, etc. I thought she'll never agree. She loves this modest lifestyle and the way of being and being in the Sangha and the solitariness and sitting and listening to various teachers in the country, she'll never agree. 
So I spoke to her, spoke to her, with a bit of hesitation, etc. And then she finally agreed. I mean, honestly, happy. One happy teacher that Jaya is going to teach. So, the other day, we used to do small groups at that time, as well as the teachings and the retreat. And she was doing all that. And I said to Jaya, would you, do you think you could give a talk? Would you give a talk? Come and sit up the front and give a talk. You know, it's quite a, you know, it's a bit of a step uh, there. And she said, I'll let you know. And then a couple of days, two or three days later, she said, yeah, yeah, I can do it. I can, I can, I can give a talk. And I said, well, what do you talk about? I still can remember this. What are you going to talk about? She said, I'm going to talk about the web of interconnectedness. Yeah. So she came. She said, here, with her authority and her authenticity and her beautiful presence. And she gave a talk. Quiet as quiet. I had my partner at the time sitting next to me. We both listened to the talk. At the end of the talk, my partner turned to me and said, Jaya is my new guru, your history. Very sweetly, after <laughs> you said, uh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes in life, there's the expressions and the uh, movements. Sometimes we hear a voice, whoever, whatever, wherever. There's a uh, uh, appreciative uh, response to the communication, to the sharing, to, uh, uh, to the voice. And these days, through the technology, but even best the presence, we can have contact with each other. We can, as the Buddha said, lend an ear on these, uh, on these teachings, and we also have the preciousness of the freedom of the human being to explore so that we're not confining ourselves to a teacher, no matter how wonderful she or he uh, may be. And that freeing up in which teachings, silences, mindfulness, meditations, reflections, discoveries, insights, you know, it forms a kind of the body of the teachings pointing to the deathless in which all finally resides. <laughs>